No republic was ever greater or holier or richer in good examples. In no city has greed and luxury seeped in so late, and no place has given so much honor to simplicity and frugality. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I am one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. We are on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. Today we're kicking off a brand new series. We've done mini-series on books before, but this is going to be the series to end all series. We're calling it No Republic Was Ever Greater, and we're taking that from the quote I just read at the beginning, which is our perhaps a bit free rendition of a passage from Livy's Ab Urbe Condita, the very famous account of the founding of the city of Rome. In this series, which is going to be on again, off again, we'll be doing a close reading of Livy's work, and we'll be pairing it as we go along with Machiavelli's Discourses on Livy, which is probably the most famous and insightful treatment that Livy has ever gotten from the famous Renaissance humanist. In order to examine the history of Rome and the Roman Empire and everything that led up to it, in order to see what kind of insight we can get, especially because, you know, this show is called New Humanists. And we're kind of looking back to the Renaissance humanist tradition, along with the kind of broader humanist tradition, which is always looking back to Greece and Rome. So we're trying to just really marinate in this whole tradition, this whole humanist tradition, because especially for the Renaissance humanists, much of what they were up to was trying to recapture for Italy the greatness of Rome. So we want to take a look through the eyes of Livy and others, but it's going to be guided by our reading of Aburbe Condita. Is it true that no republic was ever greater? So a couple words before we plunge in. I mean, Livy, besides being in the top rank of ancient historians, I mean, he's really in the top ranks of ancient Roman, even just classical in general writers. And he writes Aburbe Condita as this massive historical work starting from the very beginning of Rome up to what was then the present day. He was right in that tumultuous time that gave us the golden age of Latin literature and saw the transformation of Rome from what is generally called the Republic to the Empire. Julius Caesar and Augustus, etc. He was in the mix, and we don't have the whole book, his whole work. Machiavelli says he is going to be kind of commenting and thinking about what has come down to us through the malice of time, what has survived the malice of time. So much of it is lost, but we do have basically in whole the first 10 books along with along with some others. But yeah, we'll be starting from the beginning and excited to kick this off. So let's jump in to the preface to book one. Before we do that, one thing that you said just 
re- I realized would be could be triggersome to any any Latinists out there, believe it or not, who actually are not fans of Livy's Latin. They are like, yeah, it's just kind of dry, boring. If you want juicy stuff, read Salist. Here's an interesting thing about that. Quintilian, of course, everybody respects Quintilian to some degree, especially due to his great work on training rhetoricians. He has some really interesting things to say about about Livy. And he says, this is one thing that he says, Herodotus would not resent having Livy as his equal. For Livy not only has a wonderful charm and brilliant transparency in narrative, but he is eloquent beyond description in his set speeches. So well are all the spoken words adapted to the circumstances and the characters. As for the emotions, especially the more attractive ones, the least I can say is that no historian has presented them better. So there's some nice, a nice praise from Quintilian for, uh, for Livy. So there, there you go. <laughs> if you want to argue with me, you got to argue with Quintilian. <laughs> so the preface, I think that one of the questions to kind of get us into uh, Livy's preface is, why do people write history books today? There's so many history books. Why do we still have people doing PhDs in history? Because they can get funding. <laughs> and I think that one of the answers that you will get is that we can get a more accurate understanding of history through new research, right? And Livy discusses this. Livy discusses why on earth is he writing a history of Rome? And uh, one of the things that he says is this, whether I am going to receive any full, any return for the effort, if I record the history of the Roman people from the foundation of the city, I do not really know. Nor if I did know, would I dare say so. Indeed, I see that the subject is both old and generally known, because new writers always believe either that they are going to bring some greater authenticity to the subject matter, or that they will surpass the unpolished attempts of antiquity in literary style. So I suspect that today we primarily see historians attempting the first, but not so much the second. And I think that this is something that Livy does want to do. He does want to tell the story of Rome in a greater literary style. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. If confined to the efforts of kind of academic or professional historians, I think that there is really a bursting and bustling market, for lack of a better term, of people who do want to surpass the unpolished attempts of those before them. I can think of lots of different kind of long form history podcasts where people are telling the story of the past, are they doing it with peer review and footnotes? No, not necessarily, but it's real interesting. They're really good storytellers. Or you can think of popular level history, especially biographies or Hamilton, which is based on a biography. But I mean, these are different ways of telling telling the stories of the past and doing so in a really great style. But you definitely have two camps that don't probably don't talk to each other all that much. I think probably the better ones in the kind of 
popular camp are paying attention on some level to what's happening in the academic history world. I don't imagine many in the academic history world are trying, they might be paying attention to what's happening in the popular camp, but not in order to learn something from them, more to sneer. Yeah, it's not nuanced enough, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a, a common thing. Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, I I think of, you mentioned podcasts, and I don't I don't really listen to many, I, I, I mean, any podcasts regularly, but when I do have some time, I really do enjoy uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast on Rome. Those are the only ones that I've listened to. He has a great Julius Caesar episode, Punic Wars uh, series. This is really, really fun. But his masterpiece is the decline and fall of the Roman Republic. Just extremely well done. Really, really fun. Highly recommended. And it's just a good story that's well told. Yeah, there's some some light there, some good things uh, going on. So one of the one of the things, of course, this is a work of of history, and we we mentioned uh, Herodotus. So I think it's helpful to see what what Livy is doing. And one way to see what he's doing is to take a quick look at some of the writings of Herodotus and Thucydides. So Herodotus and the, the very first paragraph of his of his work, the histories, he says, Herodotus of Halicarnassus here presents his research so that human events do not fade with time. May the great deeds, may the great and wonderful deeds, some brought forth by the Hellenes, others by the barbarians, not go unsung as well as the causes that led them to make war on each other. There's like, there's this, these great things that have happened. And it'd be a shame if they were forgotten. This is why people write journals, right? especially it seems like if people travel. It's like, oh, man, I, like this is such a great experience. I need to write it down. I don't want to forget. And this is, this is why we write in general, right? We, we don't want to forget something. Yeah, or people in love, I think is the other one. And I'm thinking I'm thinking about that. I've been listening to some lectures on Romeo and Juliet from Paul Cantor. And before getting into the play itself, he spends a bit of time talking about the courtly love tradition, which is just neither here nor there with Livy. But the point being that in the Middle Ages, there's this real transformation of the view of romantic love as something kind of low erotic and low to basically the high point of religion is romantic love. And so Romeo and Juliet really throws this into relief, kind of makes fun of it, but also has some interesting things to say about it. But one thing that happens is that romantic love goes from this kind of funny, aggravating private thing to the most important thing you'll ever experience in your life. And so you can't let those deeds, so to speak, go unsung. You have to write them down. Yeah, so right. So not only must they not be forgotten, that would be a tragedy, but the their glory, the glory must be remembered in song. Right. And um, that that should make you think of some other Greek writings. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but we there will there should be time for those later. 
And there's a third reason for, for writing history is he wants the causes of the war to be known. And it's like, why did this happen? Why did this happen? So there are three things going on here. It's like, this should not be forgotten, should be praised, and it'd be good for us to understand why it happened. Right? This is what we see in, in Herodotus. And then we go from uh, Herodotus to a later writer, Thucydides, who has his own history, the Peloponnesian War. And he, <laughs> if, if you listen to the opening, you will, you will definitely hear the echo of Herodotus in it. He says, Thucydides, an Athenian, wrote the history of the war between the Peloponnesians and the Athenians, beginning at the moment that it broke out. And believing that it would be a great war and more worthy of relation than any that had preceded it. This belief was not without its grounds. The preparations of both the combatants were in every department in the last state of perfection. And he could see the rest of the Hellenic race taking sides in the quarrel. Those who delayed doing so at once having it in contemplation. Indeed, this was the greatest movement yet known in history, not only of the Hellenes, but of a large part of the barbarian world. I had almost said of mankind, for though the events of remote antiquity, and even those that more immediately precede the war, could not from lapse of time be clearly ascertained, yet the evidence, which an inquiry carried as far back as was practicable, led me to trust all point to the conclusion there was nothing on a greater scale either in war or in other matters. So you get a lot of the same themes, but you're starting to see a little bit of more detail in terms of what am I doing here as a historian? What are some of the challenges? And he's he's talking about you know, earlier, but and it's not that Herodotus doesn't deal with this stuff, right? But here we see in the in this first paragraph some of those issues made explicit. Like some of the causes, some of the events that are relevant here are kind of far removed. And so it's kind of unclear what actually happened. Maybe we don't know one hundred percent, but we have good enough evidence to craft the narrative that we need. Right, so we have a lot of these same themes. It's like these are glorious events, maybe some of the greatest ever, you know, maybe, I don't know. But also some more thought into the what it means to be a historian and what are the challenges of, of being a, a, a historian. And then we would go to Livy and we see a lot of these same motivations, right? A lot of these same, the, the, the discussion in terms of like, yeah, some of these sources, you know, are old. So who can say? Sometimes you have Libby saying things like that. Who can say for sure with something so old, <laughs> something being so old, um, and not having enough enough sources? And on top of this, in the preface, we see another aim made explicit, and that's in the the section that we that we quoted, and. You see this this praise for Rome, right? The greatest republic ever, he says. And 
he wants the reader to understand why was Rome so great? Why was Rome so, uh, so holy? And he wants you to know that it's just rich in good examples, which means what are, what are examples for? It's for you to learn stuff and to emulate. So you have this, in some ways, you have this uh, historic enterprise, at least in the, in, the, in the prefaces, just kind of expanding. It's like, I want to do this. I want to do this. But really, we, we really ought to learn from these guys. That's what Libby says. Yep. And so he makes this really startling claim. No republic was ever greater. And this is, of course, res publica, which you can take issue with our translation, which is fine. I think my translation, my lobe says state. So you don't have to imagine, you know, a democratic republic with a Supreme Court, a Congress and a president. So no state was ever greater. I mean, that's, it makes the claim even bigger, I guess. <laughs> but he really doubles down. And he does so in bringing up religion more explicitly, and the gods, which is something reading both Livy and Machiavelli that we will just return to over and over and over again. I mean, politics and religion, what two things go together better? Uh, <laughs> Especially uh, Thanksgiving is coming coming soon, right? So you, right. Thanksgiving, politics, and religion. And so here's what Livy says. So he's saying, look, this really ancient stuff that you have to start with, you know, maybe you don't believe it. So I get the sense Livy's kind of skeptical of it and doesn't want to be the the dupe who says, oh yeah, definitely Aeneas, the son of the divine son. He founded the city, on and on. But Livy is patriotic enough to not quash these stories either. Um, and here's his defense of passing on passing on these these stories. He says it is the privilege of antiquity. So I mean, when we think of antiquity, we might think of Livy, but for Livy, there was an antiquity before him. It is the privilege of antiquity to mingle divine things with human, and so to add dignity to the beginnings of cities. So in general, when you go backwards, uh, you get to paint them with the gold leaf of the gods. But if any people ought to be allowed to consecrate their origins and refer them to a divine source, so great is the military glory of the Roman people that when they profess that their father and the father of their founder was none other than Mars, the nations of the earth may well submit to this also with as good a grace as they submit to Rome's dominion. Rome is so great that the nations should kind of patiently bear the rule of Rome, and they should also happily accept that Rome does indeed come from the gods. It's a divine city. And so our last episode, we talked about Virgil and Christianity in T.S. Eliot's essay, and we read some passages from the Aeneid when, uh, first in book one, when Jupiter kind of consoling Venus, says that, look, Troy might be destroyed, but I'm going to found, kind of in the ashes of Troy, a new city will be founded, namely Rome, and I'll give it no time limit. It's an empire without a given end. 
And then later in book six, I think, um, Aeneas is talking to his father in Hades. And he says that he's kind of telling, telling Romans how they ought to rule, to put their stamp on the ways of peace and to spare and be gracious to those they conquer, but to throw down the proud. This is what Rome should do as it grows and expands and takes possession of the known world. And so you hear, you know, Virgil came after Livy, I'm pretty sure he's a, I mean, they were alive at the same time, but maybe like a generation separated them. Livy was the boomers and Virgil <laughs> was like Gen X. Um, or may, maybe it really should be Livy's Gen X and Virgil's a millennial. But you, you definitely hear some echoes or I guess foreshadowing, maybe Virgil's echoing Livy. I don't know. But there, there's a few things in here. And maybe it's just the water they're swimming in and kind of that transition period from Republic to Empire, that this is this is Rome's kind of raison d'etre. You know, you, you mentioned your your impression of Libya as being kind of skeptical about some of these old stories and maybe some of these divine interventions. And the quote that you read, I think, is a great example of Libby as a rhetorician. Because what is what does he say? He says that you know that they submit to these claims. We can say that they um, they suffer. You know, this, the, this, what the word patiantur, aequo animo, with the same spirit, right? As they suffer our dominion, uh, and so you think, well, how do the conquered peoples suffer the Romans conquering? Maybe it's not, uh, <laughs> maybe they're not that happy about it. I think the, the first kind of effect is like, oh yeah, you know, they, we're Romans and we're the greatest folks. So if they, uh, they accept our power over them. So yeah, of course they accept our claims as well. But then you just think about how a conquered people would think about the Romans and that might, but a question mark as to what Livy leaves the door open to here. And even if you don't particularly like it, you know that the alternative is worse. Because if you decide to not patiently bear Roman dominion, the legions will march on your city and kill you. So in your heart of hearts, do you want to credit Mars with founding Rome? Maybe not, but the alternative's worse. <laughs> that, that's at least the kind of cynical read of uh, what Livy's saying. You get the uh, the Socrates treatment, <laughs> right? And it's it is interesting. This did make me think about the Republic because the idea of mingling, in some ways, the divine with the foundations of old cities of cities. This almost seems to, to the ancient mind to be a necessity. Even in Plato's Republic, you know, you're getting to like, how do we make this whole thing work? And he's crafting this this ideal state. And then after kicking out the poets for making up stories about the gods, he has to do the same. <laughs> create, yeah, create his own kind of mythology for the founding of the city. Yeah, he says it's this privilege that is given to antiquity to do this and to make gods the authors of the cities. But is it really a privilege or is it necessitate? 
is it necessary to do so? And we'll see this in books one and two coming up here once we finish the preface about Aeneas and how Aeneas is made into a god after he dies, much like many other of the kind of founders of Rome, Romulus, Julius Caesar, Augustus. I was going to say near the beginning, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting is he opens up with this question of, or with this statement. It's like, what what reward will I receive for doing this? And in the third paragraph, he says that basically his reward is writing it. Yep. This is where we first see this idea of Rome being so great. He says, however that will be, nevertheless, it will be a pleasure to have celebrated to the best of my ability, the memory of the past achievements of the greatest people on earth. This is this is what I get. This is my reward. I get to celebrate yes. the greatest people on earth. And he also has this really kind of fun line about, you know, what if I what if I don't become the greatest? What if I'm not what if I don't gain renown for my work? And he says, if my own reputation should remain obscure amid such a crowd of writers, I would console myself with the renown and greatness of those who stand in the way of my fame. Oh, very humble, Olivia. Very humble. <laughs> if, I, if this isn't the best history book you've ever read, then I'm, I'm very happy that there are better ones out there. <laughs> right. Because the Roman, the Roman people deserve it. One reason I wanted to call this series No Republic Was Ever Greater is because it cuts two ways. Because so far, I think we've made Livy sound a bit like a cheerleader. Like, oh, Rome's awesome. Yeah, we love Rome. It's just kind of like jingoistic triumphalism. But notice the past tense was greater. This book really celebrates the achievements of Rome, but it also is elegiac, real lament at the current state of things. And so he's got harsh words for his contemporaries, but he's genuinely sad, you know, from the quote I read earlier. In no city has greed and luxury seeped in so late. Well, it has now. Like, it took a while, but Livy's living with it. And I think the from the preface, the part that really gives you insight into just how bad things have gotten in Livy's eyes is he wants to give you a picture of the triumph of the Roman people and their kind of ways of life, what, what enabled them to achieve this, um, but also how things fell apart and sent them into the downward plunge, which has brought us to the present time. And then this is, this is it right here. This present time, when we can endure neither our vices nor their cure. It's like what we're living with, the corruption that we're living with, we can't even bear. It's so terrible. And guess what? What it would take to fix it, that might even be worse. We can't bear that either. What? That's another just great line. Yeah. Great line. Uh, there was one character, historical character, who was 
notorious for being able to bear the, the current times. And Ovid <laughs> <laughs> has this great line as well. He says, uh, um, I wish I had the, the Latin in front of me, but he says something like, people say that the times are corrupt and degenerate, but they suit me just fine. <laughs> uh, so either way, you see the sentiment, and I think you also see it in, in Virgil, that there's just something dark about present times. And in Livy, you do have this like yearning for the past, this celebration of Rome as it was. And one of the really great things about Livy is that he can be so, just so, we would say bombastic in his praise or just indiscriminate. Um, I don't know what, what words we would use. It just, uh, if somebody, you know, were talking this way, if, if like somebody was talking about like the United States in this way, people would be kind of nervous. I was like, what are you doing? What is this? This is really concerning. But one of the one of the really interesting things is that Livy can talk about Rome, even the Roman past in this way, and does not shy away from historical actors describing historical actors doing really bad stuff. He just tells the story as he as he knows it, even if it has important Roman figures um, doing things that he wouldn't approve of. Uh, and we will see that pretty quickly and throughout throughout this work. What you said just made me, I was like, I have to look this up. The remarks to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, April 2007, the future president of the United States, Barack Obama. He's talking about, okay, these are not the best of times for America's reputation in the world. Talks about the Iraq War. But then he's talking about traveling the world and all these people saying, America, America's, we need America's leadership. He says, I reject the notion that the American moment has passed. I still believe that America is the last best hope of earth. We just have to show the world why this is so. A second Libby. And so he's quoting Reagan, who I think was quoting Lincoln, that last best hope of earth. So there's definitely a willingness to tout America as exceptional. What in the current day, I mean, I would Obama still talk like that? I'm not sure. Maybe if he were to run for president again, he might strike the optimistic tone. I don't know. Neither here nor there. The thing, though, that I think is very different and that definitely rings false in Livy to us, even if even if you could kind of frame it in terms of the American exceptionalism that you get from American politicians, the thing you couldn't fit is Livy talking about the conquest and domination of the world by Rome, where it's just like, yeah, these people were conquered. Rome's better. They should deal with it because it's good. You can't talk like that now. Or if you do, you have to use different words. So I think on some level, that's what things like American leadership mean. <laughs> like, what? what's the difference between American leadership and America conquering the world? <laughs> well, I do think that in a quote like like Obama's quote here, what does it mean for America to be the best hope? What is America in that sentence? I think it's it's probably a set 
of ideals and maybe a set of examples. But it's not like this this uh, imperial reality that will hopefully fill the earth in a sense. In a sense, it is that, right? It will May it fill the earth with these ideas, with these ways of living, not necessarily through the sword, but hopefully everyone will be on board and the world will be made safe for democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. Well, yeah, I, I actually suggest people go read that Chicago Council speech. It's really interesting because the things he talks about, the examples of, is like, you know, Ukraine is in shambles and they're asking for America to come help. Kenyans just want to come here. And it is armed. Like refugees in Sudan are asking America to stop the genocide. I mean, of course, yeah, we should stop genocides. But <laughs> how's America going to stop a genocide in Sudan except with guns? I mean, there's just no way to... For people intent on exterminating another group of people, you can't really stop them except by killing them. You can't use memes. <laughs> no. So uh, maybe, maybe, maybe nothing really has changed. And that's actually a theme that we'll also encounter. So religion and politics is something we'll just keep returning to over and over again, the role of religion in founding and maintaining the city. Another one is new versus old. I mean, we've already talked about, you know, it's this privilege given to antiquity. Yeah. And Livy distinguishes himself in his preface from other historians. He says they festinantibus ad haec nova, hurrying on to these new things, kind of the controversies as the Roman Republic falls apart. That's what people really want to talk about. That's the juicy stuff. And Livy says, let's slow down. Let's start from the beginning. And let's pull out all the good stuff we can from the very old stuff. And so there's, even in Livy, you get this clear distinction between the old and the new. Is the antiquity and, and the new is kind of the terminology he uses, at least in the preface. Um, and this is something you're going to see in Machiavelli. I mean, depending on who you ask. For a lot of people, Machiavelli is the beginning of modernity, at least in political thought. He's the first truly modern political thinker. And yet, he writes this whole book just pouring over Livy. And so what what does it mean to be modern? Are we the same or something qualitatively different about the time in which we now live? This is another, another theme we will hit on. And so I think we can close out the discussion of the preface at least just by saying, you know, okay, maybe is Livy maybe a little abashed about the gods? Sometimes it might seem like that, but it's worth noting. He closes the preface by saying, like, let's close in the same way, or really let's begin. He's closing the preface, but he's beginning his history. Let's begin in the same way the poets do, by looking for good omens, by praying to the gods and asking them to bless our enterprise. So he's at, at least presenting himself for inspiration from the muses yeah one thing that i i do think is is worth noting is often when you hear discussions on the history of rome or read works on rome you have this kind of complaint about the early stuff it's like ah the early stuff did it really happen i don't know it's kind of mythological even in Libby's it's kind of mythological I just can't wait till we get to the real stuff hike Nova and it's like wait a second why when did mythological stuff become boring it's true this should be really fun it's like mythologized history we should really enjoy this maybe you don't need to believe everything right 
it should be fun to discuss. It should be fun to read. Right. It should be a blast. Um, instead, we have these kind of laments that uh, it's kind of, it's kind of embarrassing that we have to go over this in class, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, just just enjoy it. With that, let's get into chapter one of book one. These first two books are concerned with the founder, the founder, the founder, the founder of Rome, because <laughs> the real founder is uh, depend. It's kind of like put a timeline up on the wall, throw a dart and say like, well, the founder at this phase is this person. The founder, the founding, founding, founder is Aeneas. This is kind of like the the reverse of, you know, how people complain about how the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king has three different endings. Right. Rome has different beginnings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Many, at least as many beginnings as Lord of the Rings has endings. One thing I mentioned Virgil earlier and kind of like hearing hearing echoes of Livy and Virgil. Here's another one. Aeneam absimili clade domo profugum, sed ad maiora rerum initia ducentibus fatis. So in the, I think it's line two of book one of the Aeneid, fato profugus, is a uh, description of Aeneas that he's kind of driven, driven out, driven on as uh to flee by fate and here you have the same words Aeneas uh by a similar by similar catastrophes driven forced to flee from home similar to Antenor another Trojan who escaped but you know Antenor sets up his little civilization on the Adriatic which is nice and all but Aeneas is led by fate to bet even greater things and so maybe this is just the way to talk about Aeneas, Fato Profugus, or maybe Virgil's reading Livy. I don't know. I, mean, I might be betraying my ignorance. Somebody has probably written a dissertation about this. Oh, surely. Dissertations without end. Uh, <laughs> that almost sounds liturgical. Well, I mean, it's Ecclesiastes, right? <laughs> of the writing of dissert- dissertations, <laughs> there's no end. Yes, right. Part of what's important here is this idea of destiny. Like Rome yeah. was going to be founded. Like the gods made sure of it. Yeah. And so this is why the some of the key players are driven by by fate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one one interesting thing is this apology for Aeneas that you get at the very beginning, where Aeneas and his crew and Antinor and his crew are the only ones the Greeks spare. You know, they, they put Troy to the torch. But the Greeks let Aeneas and Antinor live because they were the authors of peace, always trying to get Helen returned to Menelaus. You know, the rest of Troy kind of was backing up Paris and said, no, we're keeping Helen. But Aeneas and Antinor supposedly were like, oh, no, send, send Helen back. This is unjust, this is unjust. And so the Greeks... In gratitude, I guess, and bound by the laws of hospitality, they let those two guys go, at least in Libby's telling. And so the implication is that, you know, Rome, we trace back to our great Trojan founder, but yeah, the Trojans kind of had it coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it could also be seen as a um, sur- kind of survivor, survivor's guilt sort of complex. Uh, yeah. Like they all died. Why? Why am I still here? Right. And there's different ways of answering that question. I think with 
with uh, Virgil, you get a very different answer. Yes. It's not, it's not at all, oh, the Greeks look kindly upon you. I mean, Virgil. <laughs> no. Virgil, uh, uh, let's just say that the way that Virgil deals with the Greeks is not the same way that Homer deals with the Trojans. <laughs> <laughs> they get different, different treatments. And with Virgil, it's definitely divine intervention that allows him to escape. If it were for the Greeks, there would be no Aeneas <laughs> in the in the Aeneid. So it is it is though interesting that Livy wants to make this you know treat Aeneas as some sort of an olive branch to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, isn't too surprising given like what you showed in the preface with Herodotus and Thucydides that Livy is clearly working similar veins at least rhetorically if not material but rhetorically and methodologically to the greek historians so he's kind of positioned himself as another herodotus another thucydides treating the history of his own people and so he's kind of grecian in a sense yeah feels this kinship with at least with these two two authors yep so in book one, I want to talk about the marriage, the marriage scene. Let's talk about that. You know, I'm kind of hesitant to talk about this stuff just because it's just like, oh, no, we should do Virgil. It should be Virgil. But but no, no, it's, it's fine. Let's do it. We can, we can have a different series called An Empire Without End. And that'll be about <laughs> the Aeneid. Um, but this is No Republic is Ever Greater. So we got to do Livy. That's right. I mean, really quickly, Livy says the story of Aeneas arriving in Latium takes two paths. Either there's the really short version, and so the stories go that Aeneas and the Trojans show up. Latinus, the king of Laurentum, just kind of comes out and greets them, and they just like make a peace treaty, and Aeneas marries Lavinia, the daughter of King Latinus. Or... You get this story where King Latinus comes out to fight and then they talk and there's kind of negotiations and then the marriage happens, which is the story you get in Virgil. Either way, what ends up happening is that Aeneas marries Lavinia and you get this public foedus, pledge, covenant, whatever, made between the Trojans and the Latins. And then to the public pledge is given a private one. Aeneas gets to marry Lavinia. And here's the line. Aeneas became a guest in the house of Latinus. There, the latter, Latinus, in the presence of his household gods. And if you're reading the Latin, you're like, apud penates deos domesticum. Uh, Apud penates. These are the, the household gods that, if you've read the Aeneid, you've heard of the penates. These are the gods that... You know, Aeneas has his own Penates, the household gods that he rescued from Troy and has brought ostensibly to to Laurentum as well, because he's going to carry on the worship of his ancestors and the gods that have been handed down to him here in a new place. But this marriage is happening in front of Latinus's Penates. In the presence of his household gods, added a domestic treaty to the public one by giving his daughter in marriage to Aeneas. Livy says that this event removed any doubt in the minds of the Trojans that they had ended their wanderings and 
finally settled in a permanent place. And so I think it's interesting that we find this marriage happening in the home of Latinus, which is not where it should happen normally. And so this is, I mentioned Fusto de Coulange on our last episode, this French classicist who wrote about the ancient city, talking about the Greeks and Romans, and how very archaic Indo-European religion that you can see kind of across the swath of Indo-European civilization in the case of the Greeks and Romans ended up having all of these consequences for how their political and social system developed. And he has a great discussion of marriage that I want to read a little bit from. And he says that the marriage rite has three parts. And he gives the Latin terms traditio, the kind of handing over, which is where the father gives the daughter, kind of lets go of the daughter because she is part of his family and she worships her father's gods and her father's, and she ministers to her father's ancestors in her father's home. But then if she's going to go join another man, she has to be kind of cut off from that family. There's no authority other than the father who can detach her from her natal family. Then there's the deductio in domum, when she's led to the home of her new husband, accompanied by, among other things, the wedding torches. And so you see the wedding torches show up in Aeneid, of course. And so there's this chanting and a procession. She's veiled. And then before she can enter the home of her new husband, she has to be picked up in a kind of simulation of being carried off, carried away. And then the third step is the confariatio, which is kind of the wedding proper. And the confariatio is a reference to the spelt cakes that they eat that I think I would say... From reading Coulange, I get the sense that the eating of the cake is kind of the equivalent to our vow. Like you have, you have this whole ceremony, you have this whole process, there's lots of different steps. Is there one point at which you can, if you like pressed pause, you could say they're not married here and they're married here. Where does that happen? In modern wedding ceremony, it's the vow. Once you say the vows, like you're married now and the ceremony isn't quite done, but if you cut it off right after the vow, you could say it's functionally done. And so for them, it's the eating of these cakes. But the important part about it, and the reason I bring this all up, here's what Coulange says, that the wife or the wife-to-be is led before the hearth fire where the penates are, where all the domestic gods and the images of the ancestors are gathered around the sacred fire. And that's where they eat the cakes and make a sacrifice and pour the libations. From that moment on, the wife and the husband are members of the same religion because she's left the religion, the household religion of her father, and has entered into the household religion of her husband. Now the wife has the same gods, the same rites, the same prayers, and the same festivals as her husband. Marriage has completely detached her from the family of her father, has broken all religious connections. It is to the ancestors of her husband that she brings the offering. They are her family. They have become her ancestors. Marriage has created 
a second birth for her. And so you, in this account of kind of the archaic wedding ceremony, it's very physical. She is in her father's house. Her father kind of ceremonially breaks his tie with her. She's conducted to the husband's house. And then this she's united to her husband and becomes part of that household and becomes part of that family. She gets new ancestors. She's born again into a new family. And it's worth paying attention to this because you get something different in Livy with Aeneas. Where's Aeneas? He doesn't have a house. He's a refugee. He's in Latinus's house. He's in his father-in-law's house before Latinus's household gods. There's no real breaking of the connection between Lavinia and her father um, because they're before the Penates of Latinus. I mean, maybe Aeneas set up his Penates, but I doubt it. So it really inverts the kind of typical from father to husband, and it unites the Trojans with the Latins. And you get more formal unity between these two groups later on, but you get it right here from the very beginning. I mean, eventually the Trojans shed their name, take the name of Latins. But this is a recurring theme for the Romans in their early history is they end up the winner in the long run, but they're always kind of assimilating into other groups too. You see something similar with the Sabines, which we'll get to. And like when Numa becomes king, the Romans are very flexible in this way. They're happy to like, look, it's it's going to be good for us uh, to become Latin and drop the Trojan name. It's going to work out in the end. Well, th- this needs to happen. Needs to happen. Why? Because this is how finally Zeus and Juno come to be at peace. It's like, look, okay, they won't be Trojans. These Romans won't be Trojans. So... And you hate the Trojans, right? But they, 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 there are no more Trojans. They will be the Latins. Yeah. And so Juno really needs the Trojans to be annihilated. And she just can't stand that Aeneas got away and is going to found a new civilization. Mm-hmm. One thing this makes you think of, so Coulange's book, is he's arguing that there's this religion that predates the Olympian religion. And that's this religion of the Penates and the sacred fire. And so here you see the Penates, I mean, are on center stage, like literally they're right there set up on display where the action of the wedding is happening. And yet they're being for this in the narrative, they're being overshadowed because it's the will of the gods, the Olympian gods, Jupiter and Juno, that's really being fulfilled. And so you see the kind of replacement of this very archaic religion with a more kind of quote-unquote modern one. I mean, for us, it's still very, very ancient. So I I don't know if there's some kind of like evidence of that religious replacement or almost religious war, like Cold War, playing out in Livy uh, in his account of the mythology. Yeah, you would have to look at the, you know, what sources is he looking at and what is he just taking? Does he have his own things where we don't have sources, which I think is easier, probably easier to do with, with Virgil because it, there's some things that, that are his own invention and that tells us something about what he's up to. But Yeah, I just imagine that this kind of civilizational transformation, if Coulange is right and this is what happened, then you're going to see it play out even unwitting to the authors. I mean, Livy is 
far removed from that transition himself as we are from Livy. I mean, maybe even farther, but it's, you can't help uh, depicting it even despite yourself, just given the sources you're going to be working with. Yeah, just, I just can't, can't resist. Just a few things to know that are not here, but are in Virgil quickly. Uh, where's Creusa? Mm-hmm. Not here. Where's Dido? Not here. Where's Carthage? Not here. But Ascanius is uh, here. Ascanius, that's Aeneas' son, is the daughter or is the son of Lavinia rather than the son of Creusa, Aeneas's first wife, who gets abandoned in Troy. Later in chapter three, Livy hems and haws a little bit. He's like, oh, wait, who is Ascanius? Was it a previous wife? And it's just worth mentioning because it's not it's not just like curiosity this is a actually a real live issue for the Romans. Um, who was Ascanius? Because his other name, of course, is Iulus, which is where the Iulii family traces their lineage to. So you can't get Ascanius wrong because you might call into question the kind of divine right to rule of Julius Caesar. Yeah, well, one of the, one of the great things about this ambiguity about Ascanius is that it kind of puts into question this whole, are they truly Latins? Right. <laughs> if both of the you know, parents were Trojan, they're still being ruled by a fully Trojan. And the, and the line that continues is fully Trojan. Mm-hmm. And then particularly if it's Caesar himself. Is his ancestor fully Trojan or half Latin, half Trojan? I mean, what are the implications of that? I'm not even sure. I'm not sure what the kind of Ulii family family position on such a question was, or if we know. So chapter one definitely feels very mythological. Chapter two, the theme in chapter two to me seems to be realpolitik. You get this these Trojan refugees just showing up in Italy. And it throws the whole balance of power into chaos. So King Latinus, he breaks off Lavinia's engagement with Turnus, which you see in the Aeneid, in favor of Aeneas. Why does he do it? Livy doesn't answer that question. I mean, he sort of does. He says, wow, Aeneas, you're suffering so impressive. Da, 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 da. That seems kind of can only be half the story. Like, you're really going to break off an engagement with a local warlord? because you're just really impressed at Aeneas? I mean, maybe. I think there's something in there about the balance of power, about the relations between all these kings and princes. Because if this engagement was previously made, then it must mean Latinus either is an ally of Turnus or wants to be an ally of Turnus in arranging this marriage. But then he breaks it off because he must see there's something better in it for him if he allies with the Trojans, or maybe... He's more scared of what Aeneas could do to him than of what Turnus could do to him. And this is this is speculation on chapter two for my part. In any case, Aeneas and Lavinia get married. Turnus is mad. They fight. He doesn't do so well. So then he allies himself with Mezentius of the Etruscans. And so the Etruscans are the real power. I mean, Latinus and the Latins, they're kind of just local power center. They're they're nothing compared to the Etruscans. Livy says that they're Etruria stretched from the Alps to the Strait of Sicily. I mean, we're talking all of Italy. And he says they're so rich, they're so powerful, and yet 
Mezentius is not happy that the Trojans arrived. When Turnus shows up begging for help, Mezentius is like, yeah, let's get rid of these Trojans. They're bad. So you think that these are just a small group of, of refugees. They're poor and pathetic. They're, you know, huddling masses, yearning to breathe free, showing up on Latinus's doorstep. If Mezentius is scared of them, and Latinus is either scared or excited about them enough to piss off Turnus, then they must be a pretty fearsome lot, these Trojans. Livy says they showed up with nothing but ships and weapons, but it must have been a lot of people with a lot of ships and a lot of weapons. Yeah, it makes me think of Risk. Have you ever played Risk? Oh yeah, many, many hours of Risk. Whenever, whenever anyone starts getting a, too big, and especially if they're nearby, you get a little nervous. So this is this is uh, right here. <laughs> it's explaining you why you do what you do when you're playing Risk. It's interesting that you know this is the narrative of a new people coming out of the their old living place and this theme of them being too numerous and so they are feared you know to be to be expected and makes me think of um, the narrative of the Exodus some of these themes of the first in some ways you have the the reverse order where Pharaoh looks upon the children of Israel and is like, they're becoming too numerous. Um, and so let's slay the firstborn and just keep the numbers down. And there's this whole very famous series of events that leads to leaving Egypt and becoming a nation. And uh, I think we will, we, well, I know that we will see some more uh, parallels. Absolutely. So one thing that happens just going back to this question of kind of assimilation and taking on the identity of your host. Uh, in the battle, Latinus dies. And so that leaves Aeneas as the only head. Let, from my reading of Livy, it seems that Aeneas is the representative of the Trojans, but the Trojans are really subject to the Latins because he says their leader died. Latinus died. Not one of their leaders died. Their leader. So then clearly Latinus does not have a son. He has a daughter. His daughter is married to Aeneas. So the mantle then falls to Aeneas. And Aeneas, of course, has been married in front of the Latin Penates. So he's kind of a Latin. But the Latins aren't, don't seem super excited to go fight the Etruscans on behalf of Aeneas. What does Aeneas do? We're all Latins now. <laughs> they drop the Trojan name. And then According to Livy, that makes the Latins excited to fight for Aeneas. It's like, oh, okay, we're all Latins. This isn't this isn't a Trojan thing. This is a Latin thing. Well, and we're going to see this basically this exact same thing happen again. Yes. Just note this names. It's always important to pay attention to names and names changing. Why does that happen? So they defeat the Etruscans. He leads his troops out to battle. They win, but. Livy says it was the last of his mortal labors. Here's my next Fusto de Coulange connection. So Livy says about Aeneas, he lies buried. Whether it is fitting and right to term him God or man on the banks of the river Anumicus. Men, however, call him Jupiter Indiges. Yoem Indigetem Apelant. What does Indiges mean? My note says of or belonging to a certain place. 
Dionysius of Halicarnassus says that the Latins made a shrine to Aeneas with an inscription in which he was called Pater Phonios, Pater Indiges. He was also called Deus Indiges and Aeneas Indiges. So, I mean, this is, I think, super interesting, is that after he dies, he's buried by the river. And he's not buried in a house. He's not buried in a graveyard. He's just buried by a river. And he's renamed and called a god. So this is where I come back to Coulange about this kind of archaic religious practice and about burial. Coulange says that you'd bury all the family members together because there you'd celebrate all of your kind of feasts and memorials in one place with your ancestors who you're paying homage to. He says in very ancient times, the tomb was on the property of the family in the middle of the habitation, not far from the door. And he quotes Euripides' tragedy, Helen. Theoclymenus says, All hail my father's tomb. I buried thee, Proteus, at the place where men pass out, that I might often greet thee. And so ever as I go out and in, I, thy son Theoclymenus, call on thee, father. And so what you're seeing here, Colange argues, is this remnant of this really ancient Indo-European religion where the ancestor would rest in the middle of everybody, invisible but always present. He continued to be part of the family and, in effect, the father. Immortal, happy, divine, he took care of those still alive on the earth. He knew their needs and he supported their weakness. And he came to, to help them and they made sacrifices to him. So he's their kind of local family god. And I think this is what you're seeing with Aeneas here. He's not really, or not solely at least, the father of Ascanius. He's the father of the Roman people, of the Latin people. He's not buried in any particular house. He's just buried by a river. He's underground because he is the pater indigis. He's the father of those that belong to this earth. He's the father of that earth, that slice of the earth where the Latins live, I guess they now are. They're not Trojans anymore. Yeah, and it's it's always kind of strikes me as kind of abrupt. It's like you have this great story of this hero who escapes Troy, comes to this new land, gets married, and then it's like what? And in terms of like a story, it almost makes me think that it's real. <laughs> it's a true story because if you're writing it and you have your great hero and what do you do? Well, you don't just say, yeah, and then there was this battle, and then he died, and then we move on to the next thing. It's like, no, it's like you want more out of your hero. And you want to know where his grave is. Like, yeah, it's by the river. Where? You know, can you go visit it? And so just to go back to Exodus, it's like, yeah, where's Moses' grave? Hidden. Outside the promised land somewhere. Yeah. You know, he wasn't buried with, couldn't be buried with Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. He's just kind of buried out in the wilderness where he died. Well, should we talk real quickly about the preface to the Discourses on Livy by Niccolo Machiavelli? Yeah, this is not a line-for-line commentary, if you haven't read it. It's kind of a more thematic treatment of Livy, but that doesn't mean Machiavelli's not paying very close attention to the text, and my Straussian friends will tell me that we need to pay very close attention to Machiavelli's text, because I'm sure all sorts of interesting things are happening that would get past the not very careful reader. And so I'll try to be very careful as I read this. 
Just as Livy's preface echoes Herodotus and Thucydides, I think Machiavelli's echoes Livy's, but departs from it as well. You know, he wants to bring common benefit to everyone, but, you know, Livy says, oh, this is an old subject. Everyone knows it. I'll just do my part and it'll be its own reward. I'm not necessarily trying to surpass anybody. I'm just trying to do a good job. Machiavelli says he has decided to take a path as yet untrodden by anyone. And so I wonder what he means to say that his path is untrodden. I mean, it's kind of a bit silly because he's talking about a book. <laughs> Livy tread the path. So is, is the idea that no one's ever read Livy? That's obviously not the case. The Renaissance treatises and histories, I mean, they just, it's Livy, Livy, Livy ad nauseum. So I don't necessarily have an answer, but I think it's interesting. Another similarity with Livy is imitation. And Machiavelli brings it up more much more than Livy does. Livy mentions imitere once, but it's throughout this preface that Machiavelli is saying we're here to imitate the ancients. But I think it's worth reading just the very beginning in light of the fact that he thinks the whole point of his book is imitation. He says, although the envious nature of men has always made it no less dangerous to find new modes and orders than to seek unknown waters and lands. So there we have a reference to Aeneas. That is what the Trojans were doing, seeking unknown waters and lands, driven by destiny, yes, driven by fate. But this was unknown. They didn't know where they were heading. And so it was dangerous for them. It's just as dangerous, Machiavelli says, to try and find new modes and orders, new ways to govern. Why? Well, seeking unknown waters and lands is dangerous for all sorts of reasons. Monsters, enemies, storms, the equivalent in governing the envious nature of men. And just in light of Sherard, who we've talked about on this podcast before, it's interesting these two things appear together in the preface, imitation and envy, because what's the consequence of imitation? The consequence of the thing Machiavelli wants his readers to do? The consequence is envy. If everyone's trying to be like the Romans, only some people are going to get it right. If everybody wants a Tesla, you know, not everyone's going to be able to afford one. So then you're going to envy the people who get it. And I think probably at the heart of Machiavelli's project, and we can assess this as we go along, is the idea that that envious imitation, which to Girard is the root of violence, all violence, for Machiavelli, that's the fuel to run a society. That's actually how to govern well, is to kind of put reins or like hitch your horse. Yeah, hitch your horse to that dangerous envy, that envious nature of men that doesn't change, and use that to run your city. Just a quick note on this. This first paragraph, or this, you know, or this is taken from the first paragraph, apparently does not appear in the first two editions of it. It is found in his in Machiavelli's handwriting. And this is uh this is one thing that that is debated whether Machiavelli really wants it here or whether he wrote it and was like, I'm not quite sure this, this really works, which makes it even more kind of <laughs> mysterious. Yes. Yeah. 
it does raise this question of like, what is what exactly is his project if he's doing something that no one else has done? What is that? And because we see with Herodotus, Thucydides, Livy, very clearly like this is what I want to do. Yep. And here we're we're not. I don't think he yet tells us what it is that he wants to do. And this first paragraph, it almost seems like what he wants to do is create an escape hatch for himself hmm. because he, uh, I guess of how, how the paragraph ends. He says, if poor talents, little experience of present things and weak knowledge of ancient things make this attempt of mine defective and not of much utility, it will at least show the path to someone who with more virtue, more discourse and judgment will be able to fulfill this intention of mine, well, what is that? <laughs> yeah. Which, if it will not bring me praise, ought not to incur blame. So this is this is how it it, see, it reads to me. It's like I'm gonna do this thing that no one has ever done. And look, when you think about the voyage image, say you're going where mankind has not yet gone before, things can go wrong. Very right. <laughs> You can get lost. You can get, you know, attacked by pirates. And so if while I embark upon this new project, something goes wrong, well, you shouldn't blame me. Maybe I shouldn't be praised. But look, I'm doing something. I don't have examples. Yeah, the first one to make this map, this new map. And if, if it doesn't work out, then at least don't blame me. At least someone else can pick up where I left off. But of course, a lot of people do want to blame Machiavelli. <laughs> and I think at some point we'll dip into Strauss's writing on Machiavelli and to grapple this question of whether Machiavelli is a teacher of evil. But we'll hold off on Strauss and just do Machiavelli for now. Whatever his intention is, the reason for doing this mysterious project that no one's ever done before is similar to Livy's motive. Italy is in bad shape. Machiavelli says, no sign of that ancient virtue remains with us. I can do no other than marvel and grieve. So there's definitely an elegiac tone. What went wrong? Machiavelli gives us three possibilities. And this is the religion and politics gets super interesting. And the question of whether Machiavelli is a teacher of evil. He does the, he does the thing where you say what you're not going to say. No, I, I would not say. It does not arise because of what Christianity has done to us. It's not Christianity's fault. It's like, oh, did somebody say it was Christianity's fault? I mean, maybe, but this is the first I'm hearing of it. It's not that, it's not that. Nor is it what ambitious idleness has done to many, does he say, to many provinces and cities? No, he says, what ambitious idleness has done to many Christian provinces and cities. Like, oh, you seem really fixated on Christianity, Machiavelli. No, 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 it's neither of those two things. I'm Why even bring up Christianity? It's not Christianity's fault. The real problem is from not having a true knowledge of histories. People do lots of admiring of uh, the ancient world. Talks about how people pay a bunch of money so they can get a little shard of a statue from the ancient world. But nobody imitates it. But in order to imitate it, they have to know what it's really about. And so I'm going to fix that in this new project that nobody's ever done. And why shouldn't imitation be possible? 
He says, after all, heaven, sun, elements, men, have they really varied in motion, order, and power from what they were in antiquity? Things are just the same now as they were, which is a claim that claim about the kind of constancy of nature and of human nature that conflicts with kind of modernity's assessment of itself. So maybe Machiavelli is not a modern. He's he's just a good old ancient guy who wants to praise and imitate the wisdom of the ancients. Well, it's, um, yeah, it's good to kind of know at least rhetorically what he's doing because he's positioning himself in the same way that a lot of Renaissance humanists would position themselves. It's like, look, you know, just kind of to, to put it in the context of like, think of the, the humanist versus scholastic sort of debate. And it's like, look, you know, we're talking about this scholastic stuff and, but look at, look at the greatness of the past. Why should we not read these ancient authors in their own languages instead of reading wimpy paraphrases <laughs> in Latin? And bad Latin. Right. Why should why aren't we reading real Latin, real Greek? Let's go back to the sources. Right. So this is a very humanist kind of concern. And this does bring up a question as to how to read uh, Machiavelli's discussion of Christianity at certain points. Is it a full on critique? Right. As uh, uh, some would read it. Or is it in line with the sorts of critiques that you know pro that you would see from pro-Christian humanists, like for instance, like Erasmus, having very you know strong critiques of the religious establishment, but not but but doing it in loyalty to Christianity, saving true religion from the institution, yeah. or is it a root and branch thing that Machiavelli is doing? especially in light of this claim. Nothing has changed. Man hasn't changed. The earth hasn't changed. That itself is potentially subversive of Christianity because the Christian claim is that the world decisively changed when the Godhead took on human flesh and history itself changed on a pivot point on Golgotha. And now history is tending towards something, towards the eschaton, guided by the church on earth to, to the final fulfillment of everything. And there was, a, there was a decisive change, this pivot point between the ancient and the modern. I mean, that's one way to look at Christianity's claims. And if that's true, if you accept that account, then maybe the ancients aren't a great lesson for us. So one thing we'll have to do when reading Livy will be to look at Augustine and the city of God and his claims about the Roman Empire. Uh, he's a bit more measured than Livy, you might say. <laughs> uh, and see see if Augustine can change our reading of Livy and of Machiavelli. Yeah, well, you know, you have the whole, from Virgil, you have, I mean, this imperium sine fine, right? And so just think about this. You're, you grow up hearing these really breathtaking phrases, imperium sine fine, the greatest res publica on earth. And then you're living at the time of Augustine and the barbarians are taking over and your city is kind of just going downhill. That's um, a recipe for some real existential angst. And then to just look at Machiavelli, 
I mean, from their perspective, things haven't really gotten better since then. It's just been like a thousand years of the barbarians ruling, basically. There's been some revival of learning in the meantime, but politically, the situation hasn't gotten any better. Italy hasn't reunited to under the aegis of Rome to rule Europe, to rule the Mediterranean. Like the barbarians came, stayed, and we never recovered. And so for the humanists and Machiavelli, it's like it's time to sh- it's time to shake the Italians out of their stupor and retake our place where we belong. Well, on that note, thank you for joining us for the first episode of our series, No Republic Was Ever Greater. We will be back again soon with new humanists, both of this Livy series and our kind of regular examinations of the humanistic tradition and education and what it all means. Thanks so much. Thanks.